Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, experiences, reflections, and ideas that never quite get represented this way in the scientific literature or conferences. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I'm the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. I am working with a number of organizations and community groups focused on eating disorders to bring forward this series. And our goal is to capture the narrative history of eating disorders. We hope that our conversations will bring insights and guidance that inspire new and next generations of leaders in the field. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jenny Thomas. Dr. Thomas is co-director of the Eating Disorders Clinical and Research Program at Mass General Hospital and associate professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She is the president of the Academy for Eating Disorders. Dr. Thomas has a long history of clinical work and research work on the neurobiology and treatment of eating disorders with a particular focus on a set of eating disturbances that have long been recognized in the clinical world, but only recently formally recognized in our diagnostic systems that she's going to talk to us about. So Jenny, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Kathy. It's a real honor and kind of surreal to be invited on this podcast. I love podcasts and I'm really interested in eating disorders and I've been reading your papers since I was in graduate school. So I'm excited for the conversation. (laughs) Terrific. So let's start at the beginning with growing up years, Jenny, what was life like for you growing up and what did you know about eating disorders? What did you know about psychology? Well, um, I come from a long line of academics in my family. So uh, my uh, dad is a cardiologist and professor of medicine and my grandfather um, is a professor of education. So uh, I knew a lot about academia and growing up, I myself uh, was a pre-professional ballerina and that's um, kind of unfortunately, but fortuitously in the end, how I got interested in eating disorders um, because our coaches were always telling us to lose weight. Hmm. So when did you start dancing? When I was about 11 and it was so fun. I loved the idea of being able to wear a tiara and a tutu and express myself with music. And I had so many friends, um, but it was tricky because as I got more advanced, the coaches would be telling us that in order to have a certain part, you needed to look a certain way. And my body type just wasn't naturally like that. So I did end up developing some, you know, an eating disorder, disordered eating, And I was really lucky that because I was a kid growing up in the nineties, a lot of the new evidence-based treatments for eating disorders had already begun to be developed at that time. And so my family looked for treatment for me, um, not knowing a lot about eating disorders or randomized controlled trials and just asked around to other families, looked in like the yellow pages and they found me a therapist who, um, I now realize in retrospect gave me CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is now like the gold standard treatment that we offer to all of our patients. And it was incredibly helpful. And so that started me on my journey of wanting to help other people through clinical work and research. It's so interesting, Jenny, what you describe in terms of dancing and just want to pause for a moment there because we know that 
physical activity and recreational sports and moderate dance of all types um, is really healthy for people, right? But when it becomes, you describe how joyful it was for you until it became super competitive. And that that transition from uh, being able to really be engaged in an activity that was having positive mental health benefits to uh, excelling to a level of competition that it starts to eat away at our mental health is something that we're seeing actually in a number of sports. Uh, and I wonder at the time, do you remember that window, that transition from it's being joyful to it's becoming something that's so complicated for you or that was starting to eat away at your self-esteem, your, your own mental health? Yeah. Um, I was about 13 and I was doing this summer intensive program and my coach took me aside and said, you know, you're really talented. You're, you're doing great, you're really advancing, but the thing that's holding you back is your body type. And I'm going to need you to lose three pounds and being someone that was a perfectionist and a hard worker and just always trying to please, um, I, you know, lost more than that. Um, and, and I think that was really the turning point for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you got lucky in a way, as you describe it with your parents, that they were able to find an evidence-based treatment. You're describing it is the 90s. We're doing better in terms of getting treatments documented and disseminated by that point. But the issue that you raise about access to care is one that I think is, is still a real issue, right? I just feel like I was so incredibly lucky, Kathy, because my dad was a physician. Um, my family knew a lot of other families in the community. Um, there were other dancers in my orbit who had struggled with this issue and we could kind of connect over that. And just the timing was so lucky. You know, if I had been five or 10 years older, I think we wouldn't have been able to find a therapist that was trained in cognitive behavioral therapy because that was such a new therapy at that time for eating disorders. And the other thing that I found out later, which is so meaningful to me now being the president of the Academy for Eating Disorders is that my treaters at the time were members of the uh, Academy in the nineties. Mm -hmm. And so it really, that's how they learned about this therapy. And so that's how I feel so passionate about really growing our membership in the Academy and getting these treatments out there so that we can increase access to these evidence-based treatments. So you're a teen, you are joyfully engaged in dance, then it really does a number on you in terms of your own mental health. You're able to get treatment. The treatment was helpful from the start. Did you remember it being something that you that made sense to you right from the beginning or was it a struggle to get connected to to treatment well i think it was a struggle at first because i remember having the thought that okay these concepts about how restricting is going to lead you to binging and vomiting and things like that, that makes a lot of sense for other people but to be a ballerina i felt you know this restrictive eating was kind of part of my job, or maybe these ideas applied really well to other people, but not specifically to me. I think um, a lot of times people will struggle with that, thinking that they're 
their own story is so incredibly unique and different from others. I think especially as a teenager, we tend to buy into that narrative. Um, but I had a therapist that was really patient and a really supportive family. Um, and so after a couple of years, I was in a really good place with the eating disorder, um, really in remission recovery. And um, I remember, you know, the I ended up going for summer intensive at Boston Ballet when I was about 17. They asked me to stay the year to maybe eventually, you know, join their second company. Um, but I decided along with my family that I actually wanted to go to college instead, that that might not be the best idea for my mental health to, you know, try to really pursue that dream of being a professional ballerina. So few people are successful. Um, and I really did quite like school and I was getting really interested in science. So um, I decided to go to college instead. Mm-hmm. So sometimes... Uh, I ask guests what they might have done if they hadn't become psychologists, but you've just told us you had <laughs> this opportunity to become a ballerina and for your mental health decided actually to become a mental health professional. So you went to college with an interest in, you knew you were interested in sciences. Yeah. Is from the start? yeah tell me about that. Also, um, like I mentioned earlier, um, my father is an academic cardiologist. And so I remember I took a statistics course in high school and he had to buy me this special calculator that cost like a hundred dollars. And so he said he would buy me the calculator if I would promise to help him with the stats on some of his papers. So I ended <laughs> up getting my first couple of publications um, with my dad and with his cardiology team. And that's how I found out I was really interested in data analysis and statistics and having had this experience myself of having had an eating disorder and then gotten such amazing healthcare for it. I already knew going into college that I wanted to major in psychology and um, I wanted to go on and try to get my PhD in clinical psychology. And so that's exactly what I did. I did my undergrad at Dartmouth College. I had an awesome opportunity to work um, with uh, Professor Todd Heatherton, uh, who introduced me to um, Dr. Pamela Keel, who was one of my early mentors and also got to do a summer internship with Ann Becker at Mass General Hospital, which is where I work now. So, you know, the story had a tricky start, but everything started to fall into place. And I'm really grateful for all the mentors that I had during that time. So when you were at Dartmouth, you were already, you already knew that you wanted to do psychology and eating disorders and were already finding leaders in the field and mentors in the field. Is that right? Yes. I remember actually trying to look for mentors by taking an issue of the International Journal of Eating Disorders and just scanning all the members of the editorial board and thinking, uh-huh. well, who can I reach out to? You know, so your name was on there, Kathy, other people. Uh-huh. Um, who could I reach out to to get experiences, to apply to graduate school? And I just felt so surrounded by support from the community. It was amazing. What were some of the first studies or first projects that you worked on? Well, my first study, um, I got a small research grant um, from Dartmouth and with the support of Todd Heatherton and Pam Keel was able to do a study about ballet dancers um, and eating disorders. So it was really right, right up my alley. And um, it was my first publication. And so, uh, or my first one that I was first author, I had helped out my dad, but it wasn't really my own work. Um, in this case, it was my own. And um, we looked at the relationship between the 
level of competitiveness of the ballet schools. So were they like a nationally ranked school versus a regional school or just kind of like the neighborhood school around the corner and the level of disordered eating um, and actually found that some of the highest rates of disordered eating were at these like regional level type of schools, um, which was really interesting. Um, and it was related to levels of perfectionism in that group as well. Um, and it was really neat to be able to actually just travel to a bunch of different ballet schools and do interviews and surveys um, mm -hmm. and get that first paper out there. Yeah. Yeah. And then you went on to explore other aspects of eating disorders. Tell us a bit about your particular interest in eating disorders. Sure. Well, so after I finished up at Dartmouth, um, I did my degree in clinical psychology at Yale, where I was really fortunate to work uh, with Dr. Kelly Brennell, who was my advisor there, and continued to be able to collaborate uh, with Pam Keel and Ann Becker. And um, what I started to realize in my clinical work, because I was uh, had the fortune to be able to start seeing patients at that time, was that a lot of people were not having like a stereotypical eating disorder, I guess, coming from a background that almost is more stereotypical. Like I was a white adolescent female who was a ballet dancer, kind of like the obvious person that you'd be suspicious of an eating disorder. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of patients that came in didn't have that kind of background. You know, they were very young kids or they were older adults or they were male, or maybe they didn't have any body image concerns at all. And that's where I started to get really interested that there were so many patients that didn't meet uh, criteria for what was considered at that time, um, the DSM-5 or DSM-4 Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, fourth edition at that time, uh, disorders. So for example, there were folks that were coming to me saying they were having difficulty eating, but they promised up and down. It was not because they were afraid of gaining weight. They actually mm -hmm. wanted to gain weight, or maybe they're having difficulty expanding their variety of eating. And they were just only eating like pasta and vanilla ice cream. And it was hard for them to expand. And again, it had nothing to do with body image or shape and weight. So I started to get quite interested in like why that was. So Jenny, as you start to see all these individuals who clearly have disordered eating, but don't have the classic weight concerns or body shape concerns, what are you starting to think? What are you, what are the research questions you begin to ask that move the field along? Well, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I was thinking, they must have secret body image disturbance. That's it. So I started doing research where I would give self-report measures of like deception to see if maybe people were sort of faking good and maybe sort of minimizing or denying the level of psych pathology they had. Cause we know certainly that that can be a phenomenon. I also developed an, an implicit association test um, in collaboration with some of my colleagues, where basically we were having people do a performance-based measure. So rather than relying on their self-report, we were asking them to um, press buttons when images of kind of average weight models versus thin models were associated with positive words versus negative words. So to see if without endorsing it explicitly, if on an implicit level, they were really associating thin bodies with very positive words, more so than healthy people without eating disorders. And what we found is that there actually was a subgroup of people that were at a low weight, were restricting their eating, but they 
were not faking it. They weren't scoring high on these deception scales and they were not associating thinness with positive. In fact, they were associating it with more of the negative words. And so that made me really start to believe that, Hey, actually there must be a group of individuals that do not have anorexia nervosa. They have a restrictive eating disorder, but it's pretty different. And then I started to read more about all of our colleagues who for decades, you know, worth, I was thinking, oh, this is this new phenomenon, but no, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, we have all these colleagues who'd been studying pediatric feeding disorders for decades and really seeing a lot of these presentations in infants and, and young children, you know, toddlers, elementary school, not talking about it as much in adults or older patients, like what I was seeing. Um, but I started to pull all these things together. And then in 2013, when the DSM five work group added the new diagnosis of avoidant restrictive food intake disorder or ARFID, I thought that's it. These are who these people are. Mm -hmm. So tell us what are the core features of ARFID? So the main hallmark feature of ARFID is avoidance and restriction of food intake. So by avoidance, we typically mean avoiding whole categories of food. So like not eating any fruits or vegetables or very few protein foods. By restriction, we typically mean not eating enough volume of food or enough calories. So just not eating enough food overall, even if the variety is there. And it goes beyond just normal pickiness or normal malnutrition because it has to be causing problems in the person's life. And some of these problems could include things like not growing taller, if it's a young person, not gaining weight, if it's a young person, or maybe even losing quite a bit of weight. It could lead to nutrition deficiencies like low iron or low vitamin C, things that we don't typically see in normally developing kids or adults in um, more developed societies. It could include having to be dependent on supplements like vitamins and minerals or calorie supplements like Booster and Sure, and could include psychosocial impairment, like not being able to go to work dinners or parties, or even having to come home from college because the person can't find food in the dining hall that they feel comfortable eating. So it really is quite impairing and goes above and beyond just normal picky eating. Jenny, you're describing a group of individuals who aren't either aren't developing um, because of their avoidance or restriction of food or are having other significant uh, where there's other significant implications. And the question has to emerge then. So, okay, this is really extreme and these individuals are saying it's not about body image. And so then of course the question is the million dollar question is, well, what is it about then? So what were the research questions that you asked to try to answer that question that wasn't answered by the models that we had for other eating disorders? Well, I really tried to listen to my patients and what they were telling me about what was getting in the way of their eating. And typically their rationales for why they couldn't eat would fall into three different categories, which are the ones recognized in DSM-5. So there was a nice, you know, uh, continuity there. So they would explain to me that, you know, in one instance, they had what we call sensory sensitivity, like that they just felt like foods would taste weird to them or gross or the 
texture was disgusting and the temperature wasn't right. Things just didn't feel just right. Another presentation is that they would describe to me that they just felt very afraid that eating would make something bad happen to them. So like I worked with a little girl who just heard that another little boy in her school had had a choking episode at lunchtime. And she herself became so afraid that she was going to choke that she almost, she stopped eating entirely and was only taking in liquids or smoothies. And then a final presentation would be folks who just said that they never got hungry. And that was fascinating to me, Kathy, because, okay, we're recording this in the morning and I'm already thinking, you know, I wonder what I might have for lunch. Usually Friday nights, my family would have pizza night with my kids, um, wondering what toppings we'll have. But I did have a patient who was fed entirely by tube who just said to me, you know, I asked him, gosh, what's getting in the way of your eating? And he said, Dr. Thomas, I just don't feel hungry ever. And I thought, wow, that's, that's so interesting. I wonder what's leading to that. And I think that in psychopathology research, we have such a sorted history of like when there's a new disorder identified, we have a pattern of thinking of what might cause it. We're, you know, as humans, we're always wondering what causes things and we want to have some controllability. And I think in that pattern, typically we tend to blame the individual. Like we think, well, what did they do wrong that they've got this disorder? You know, maybe they're being stubborn or they're being spoiled or picky, or they just should really try to expose themselves to these food. Or we'll start blaming the family, you know, just like we did with anorexia or schizophrenia. So we'll say, oh, the parent should be forcing them to eat. They're just letting them eat junk food all the time, or they're not feeding them enough food. They just have to make them sit there for hours until they finish it. Um, but really, I I don't think that people are choosing to have any eating disorder and certainly not ARFID. And I don't think it's the person's fault or the family's fault at all. And so what my team at Mass General started to look at is the neurobiology of ARFID and whether there might be something biological going on that we don't actually know if it would cause ARFID, but certainly could be a maintenance factor for the behaviors that we end up seeing. Two things I want to follow up on. One is this idea of blaming, right? And and the willfulness of this in a psychological way. And we'll come back around to that in a minute. The other that I think is really important that you subtly referred to, but I want to punctuate it, is this idea that there could be something that triggers the onset of this behavior that's different from what maintains it, right? So the etiologic factors versus the maintenance factors. Can you talk about that? Maybe there's a clinical example that you could share in that case that would highlight, that would pull that out. Uh, and then we can go back around to this idea of blame. Sure. Well, in terms of the maintenance factors, we've thought about that a lot with ARFID. So even though we don't necessarily know what causes it, and I'm hoping that my team can help to elucidate that in the coming years, but one thing that could maintain it could be that if somebody tells everyone around them that they are uncomfortable trying new foods, other people will now not suggest to them, here, why don't you try this? Or there won't be an expectation the person's going to bring on board new foods. And mm -hmm. so the lack of opportunity for trying new foods could itself be a maintenance factor, keeping the ARFID going in the current, in the, the near term, in the current time, even though it's not as if a lack of exposure to new foods, like let's say when somebody was a toddler or a young person, it's not as if they weren't exposed to them then. Um, mm -hmm. So there could be 
you know, something different that might've caused it in the beginning to what's keeping it going now. And that's actually really nice from a psychotherapy perspective, because we don't have to figure out necessarily what caused it to begin with. We can't have a time machine and go back and, and fix that, but we might be able to make changes to what's happening in the environment now, how the person is behaving or what they're telling themselves or how their support people are helping them. And that speaks to needing to know about the maintenance factors even more so than the risk factors or the causal factors. Mm-hmm. So the maintenance factors could be environmental uh, exposure, patterns, behaviors, uh, social. You're also studying the brain maintenance factors at the neuropathway, neurobiology levels. Some early findings that you want to share with us about that? Sure. So one of the things I love about working at Mass General is that we have a multidisciplinary team. So not just psychologists, like me and my colleagues, Cameron Eddy and Kendra Becker and Lauren Brightup, Helen Murray, but also neuroscientists like Laura Holson and endocrinologists like Liz Lawson and Madhu Misra. And so we have been studying ARFID now for many years and really being able to look at it from all different angles. So not just clinical interviews, but also looking at appetite, regulating hormones, um, doing taste tests with these um, folks and um, looking at brain imaging. So there are two findings that we have had that I think are really exciting that I would love to share with you. So the first is about appetite regulating hormones. So we have a paradigm where we invite folks with ARFID and then also healthy people without ARFID to come into the lab fasting. So they haven't eaten anything all night and it's quite early in the morning. And uh, we set an IV and look at their appetite regulating hormones prior to them eating any food. And one finding that we have found is that individuals with ARFID at at a fasted state have significantly higher levels of cholecystokinine or CCK when compared to healthy people, again, Mm. in a fasted state. And CCK is a hormone that, you know, it does a lot of things, but one of the things it does, it's associated with feelings of satiety. And in our study, we found that folks with ARFID had three times as high levels of the satiety hormone as healthy people in a fasted state. And so that really made me feel connected back to when that patient said that he doesn't feel hungry ever, because if you came in a fasted state, when ostensibly you should be hungry for breakfast, right? We were going to just give them a breakfast test meal, but you already had this really high level of satiety hormone. It might be very difficult for you to eat whatever food was served to you in the next step. So we thought that was really interesting. Going back to the the maintenance versus the risk factor, we don't know if that predates the ARFID or if once somebody is in a cycle of restrictive and avoidant eating, that their CCK levels change. So that's something we'd love to explore in the future. Right. And then you said there's one other data point. Yeah. So another thing that we've done is, is looked at neuroimaging with these folks with ARFID. So um, my colleague, Laura Holson has created a paradigm where we show folks images of food. Um, and it's a range of foods ranging from things that are pretty palatable, like pizza or cake or ice cream um, to things that are maybe a little bit more so-called healthy foods like salad or, or apple. So kind of a whole range of food. 
And then we compare people's response to that, um, to just pictures of everyday objects so that we can subtract out um, whatever, uh, whatever neural response people would have just to viewing images at all. So we're able to isolate the response just to viewing food, the concept of food in these images. And so one of the things that we found is that folks with RFID, when they're looking at these food images in a fasted state, compared to healthy people is that they have greater, uh, greater reactivity. So hyperactivation in the salience network of the brain, um, which comprises the number of regions that are related to threat processing and threat detection. So in particular, they have, um, higher levels of response in the interior cingulate cortex and individuals who have that fear presentation. So like the little gal, I was telling you that was afraid of choking. This would also include people afraid of vomiting or, um, of having GI pain folks in that fear group also had higher levels of responsivity in the amygdala, which is a, a small region of the brain that's very much associated with, with fear processing. And so just to summarize, when people with RFID are looking at images of food in a fasted state, so we'd expect them to be excited about this possible food, um, they're actually responding with more of a fear or a threat type of response in the brain, which again goes back to the idea of like, why might it be so hard for them to eat? If they're mm-hmm. responding to fear to these foods, um, that could make it really difficult for them to then approach those foods and um, maintain that avoidance that we're seeing clinically. So you're describing two pretty powerful factors. You've got individuals with RFID who are who have much higher levels of CCK, so have an experience of absence of hunger and have a tendency to respond with a fear response to these food stimuli. And both of those, right, are going to have a pretty significant impact on how we behave, how we respond then to the food that's put in front of us. So that takes us, Jenny, I want to you you shared with us your own experience of growing up, your experience of psychology, eating disorder, science, getting to this upper, getting to this place of studying ARFID and these findings, these biological findings, putting it all together. What's the, what's crystallized for you in terms of this big idea? Yeah, I think it's the people don't choose to have eating disorders. People don't just choose to restrict their eating to be stubborn or willful or because they feel like it. Um, I mean, certainly these behaviors are complex, but once they're in place, there's something really biological, whether it be appetite regulating hormones, uh, neural response that locks the behaviors in place and makes it really difficult for people to change them on their own. I remember when I was a kid and people around me would ask like, why can't you just eat? Like, obviously that's the treatment. That's what you have to do. But I felt paralyzed. Like I just couldn't, you know, until I did get some good, helpful treatment and support. And I think of my patients now who are telling me they're afraid to eat, they're feeling full. Like we should believe them. That's the reason why they're not eating. That's what we're seeing in the data as well. 
millions of dollars later, it all comes back to what they were telling us in the first place about how difficult it is for them to make these changes. And they're not choosing to do any of this on purpose. Mm -hmm. So you've had the opportunity to understand personally what it's like to struggle with these issues of disordered eating, eating disorder. You've worked and and really pioneered research. You have worked as a clinician in this field. I know that you've put a lot of this together in writings that, and, and in several books that are around treatment for eating disorders. Can you highlight for us some of the key takeaways or what you're hoping these books will do uh, in terms of advancing the field? Sure. Well, two of my books that I have co-authored with my colleagues, Carmenetti and, and Kendra Becker, are about cognitive behavioral therapy for ARFID, or we call it CBTAR. And I think even though I guess the big idea is that eating disorders are not a choice and there's a powerful neurobiology that may drive the behaviors, we still think that behavioral treatment could be very effective. And one of our next steps in our research is looking at whether behavioral treatments actually change the neurobiology. So even without acting directly on the hormones or acting directly on the brain, if we can change people's behavior, change people's behaviors, we may be able to change that neurobiology and help them to get well. And so the two books that my colleagues and I have written on ARFID are about the treatment that we provide at our clinic and are trying to train a lot of clinicians and try to help people with ARFID around the world. So do you have some findings from the application of CBT AR that give you confidence, give you, leave you optimistic about its efficacy in, in supporting this individuals with ARFID? Yes, we're still in the early stages of research. We're just starting an RCT where we're comparing it to nutrition counseling. But in terms of just open trials, we do have results from 20 adolescents um, without a control group, but we just followed the 20 adolescents from pre to post. Um, and about two thirds of them by the end of the therapy were in remission from ARFID. So they might've had still some symptoms, but they were at a healthy weight. On average, they added on board about 18 new foods, and they significantly decreased their levels of ARFID symptoms um, based on interview and self-report measures. And then we found pretty similar results for adults. Um, almost half of them were in remission by the end of the therapy. This was a small study of about 15 adults with ARFID. One thing that I thought was interesting is that the efficacy for adults was slightly less than that for children, which I think is, you know, mirroring what we see with other eating disorders. So certainly we need to figure out ways to refine the treatment. I think the thing that's interesting about ARFID, even as compared to other eating disorders is the onset is so young. So many families will tell me, you know, my child has had this problem since they were they wouldn't accept infant formula, you know, or they had trouble uh, moving to solid foods as a toddler. So typically the onset of this is much younger. By the time adults come to us for treatment, they've often been unwell for, for decades and decades. Um, so I think the efficacy there is a little bit less than for kids, but in neither case, I'm really optimistic about us applying these cognitive behavioral principles to the treatment of ARFID to really be able to move the needle on helping people. Jenny, as you reflect back on 
the work that you've done as a clinician and researcher, you mentioned several mentors who were really important to you in your professional development. Can you comment a bit about role of mentorship and what you hope you can convey to the next generation of clinicians and researchers becoming a mentor as you become a mentor yourself? Yeah, I mean, I really benefited so much from mentorship in the field. I feel like there are certain pearls of wisdom that I've learned from different colleagues over the years, like one mentor, Ruth Weissman, who's the editor of the IGED when I was associate editor, um, was mentoring me a little bit of my presidency of the AD and would always mention, you know, never waste a good crisis. <laughs> so when it seems that things are kind of a disaster, think about what you can take away from it in terms of making change. And it actually can be an opportunity. Um, one thing that Pam Keel taught me is just to always be persistent, that if you're not getting rejected from something like a paper or a grant, you're probably just not applying for enough things. Um, and I really have tried to take those learnings um, and help my own mentees think that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they're not getting accepted for something, just encouraging them to keep going. As you reflect back, are there, is there anything that stands out as sort of a moment of surprise for you? Yeah, I think that I was so wedded to the idea that eating disorders are about shape and weight that I was convinced that my early studies looking at deception scales and implicit associations would find that folks who were presenting with what we now know as ARFID, that I would find that they had some implicit biases towards weight and shape, that they had to fit into this mold of anorexia nervosa. And I was surprised that they didn't. And then I think pleasantly surprised because it did remind me that we have to listen to what our patients are telling us and also Uh open up the door for a whole new career of research focusing on a disorder that I didn't even know existed when I first started my PhD. It's so interesting, right? Because your your example brings home so clearly how our frameworks limit what we can imagine is possible and and how dangerous that can be and and as you say how fortunate it is that we as a field eventually we're surprised enough and we're proven wrong in various ways. You describe your own surprise and being proven wrong with the assumptions that you had about um, the immutability of uh, weight and shape concerns with eating disorders that um, here we are understanding that there's a whole nother group of individuals with a syndrome that is causing significant distress that wasn't appropriately recognized till now or wasn't there clinically people were seeing these young people um but as you say particularly young people kids with arfid uh but it really wasn't integrated and understood well in terms of the clinical picture which my comment makes me want to ask you just one more question about this jenny because uh, i mentioned kids you mentioned that some of the individuals with ARFID who are adults um, are describing that 
as far back as they can remember, they had certain sensitivities around food variety or food texture, temperature, et cetera. And parents will describe a child being difficult to, that a child would have, would have difficulty going from nursing to solid foods or solid foods, expanding the range of solid foods early, early on in their lives. Are we seeing more cases of ARFID? And are we seeing more cases of ARFID going into adulthood? I think it's hard to tell because like with other eating disorders, uh, ARFID often is not added to these big epidemiological surveillance studies that will be, you know, countrywide. So we don't actually have a, a baseline to compare changes in prevalence. I do think though, that there are some societal forces that could be making it more likely that people are developing ARFID. So being a mom myself, I have a three and a six-year-old. And one thing I'm struck by is anytime we eat at a restaurant, there's always a kid's menu. So no matter if we go to like, let's say a Mexican restaurant where it's assumed that the grownups will be eating Mexican food, there will be a kid's menu that has nuggets and fries and typical sort of what we think of as kid food. And there are a lot of uh, products that are advertised to children around food, you know, with, with like Disney characters with cookies and things like that. And, and all of this is to say, I think that we've developed more of a belief over time that kids eat their own specialized food. And for folks that might be already vulnerable to developing ARFID, that might prevent them from expanding their horizons and trying a lot of other food. So I do worry a little bit about that phenomenon. Um, I mean, you know, no judgment, definitely my kids love to eat fries and nuggets as well. Um, but I do worry about that a little bit on a, on a broader level. Yeah. The issues of our changing food supply raise lots of questions for us about what that means overall in our health and our weight and our, and risk for eating disorders, certainly. Um, Jenny, closing question for you. What advice would you give to someone who wants to pursue a career similar to yours? Read everything you can. Um, I read so many articles. One of my first projects I got to do was so great. I was working with Ann Becker, my mentor at Mass General. It's the summer um, fellowship. And I just remember sitting in the, the Treadwell library, <laughs> photocopying all of these articles and just reading and reading and reading articles. And that's how I built up a knowledge base of who are the people in the field? What are the big ideas? You know, there wasn't this awesome podcast at this time. I had to figure it out on my own. Um, but I think just the most reading you can do the better to really give yourself a base and going to conferences. So mm -hmm. that's really how I met so many mentors and then so many peers who I consider to be peer mentors as well. Like some of my best friends now are people that I met 20 years ago because we were giving posters together um, as kids, basically. So reading and going to conferences are just so important. Maybe one last thing is also don't feel shy to, to go up to people and introduce yourself or to say hello. I remember just always being so nervous um, to say hi or, you know, oh, this person's famous. I used to think of the AD, the Academy for Eating Disorders meeting was like the Academy Awards or the Oscars of eating disorders. It was all the <laughs> famous people. Um, but everyone's been so nice. I think it's a really kind field. So reading, going to conferences and not being shy about introducing yourself and meeting your idols. 
Terrific. Well, Jenny, you have contributed tremendously to the field, and we continue to benefit enormously from the research that you're doing and the way in which you translate that into meaningful clinical practice and building evidence-based treatments, particularly for these individuals with ARFID. And thank you for the work you're doing, and thanks for joining us today. 